Well, we today are in the uh, seventh of eight sermons in this series on portions of the book of Jeremiah. And as I've said before, Jeremiah was somewhat of a performance artist. He liked to use object lessons and visual images in, in his preaching. And one of them that he used in chapter 27, we hear the story of Jeremiah having crafted a, like an oxen yoke that he wore on his shoulders as a, a symbol of the certainty of the kind of the slavery of exile that uh, the people were going to be in. That they, he put on this yoke and he said, those of you in exile are going to be in exile for 70 years. You're going to wear the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon for 70 years. And there was one uh, prophet who had remained behind in Jerusalem and then other prophets who, you know, prophets were kind of like priests or officials uh, in the temple. There were sort of employed prophets. There were also people like Jeremiah who were definitely not employed by the establishment, <laughs> but railed against the establishment. But there were, there were sort of official temple prophets and one of them was saying, no, it's only gonna be two years, God told me. And Jeremiah is saying, no, not true. And it's in that context that chapter 29 comes about because Jeremiah composes a letter to the exiles and lets them know what God has said about the length of that exile being 70 years. And so we're going to pick up this passage in verse 4 of chapter 29 where we have in 4 through 14 Jeremiah's letter to the exiles. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let the prophets and the diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name and I did not send them, says the Lord. For thus says the Lord, only when Babylon's 70 years are completed will I visit you and I will fulfill to you the promise and bring you back from this place. For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for harm, to give you a future with hope. Then when you call upon me and come and pray to me, I will hear you. When you search for me, you will find me. If you seek me with all your heart, I will let you find me, says the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from the nations and all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from the place from which I sent you into exile. Let's pray. Lord, help us to hear your voice this day, to know that you are speaking and to rest in the comfort of your voice. Help us to live in this moment where we are listening to you and so experience the grace that is ours in every moment in your steadfast love. 
For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Most of us are familiar with the passage in Ecclesiastes 3, which details the, the preacher in Ecclesiastes, this, this preacher of wisdom, details the kind of the rhythms of life, the, the give and take, the ebb and flow of life. You know, there's a time to be born and, and there's a, a time to die. For everything, he says, there is a season and he lists all of those things. And, and then he ends the piece with this observation that often is not read. And it's an observation that's really quite interesting. He says, you know, we can observe the seasons, but the fact of the matter is, is that part of the reason we can sense time is because God has put eternity in our hearts. God has, has given us a sense of, of past and future, in other words. We, we have the ability to do what most animals can't do, and, and that is to remember a distant past and to think about what might come in the future. We, we have this sense of time, and yet the thing about that eternity in our hearts, says the writer of Ecclesiastes, is that it's not enough to figure it all out. It's just enough to know that there was a past that we can remember with joy or regret, and there will be a future that we can either dread with anxiety or dream about expectantly. But we don't know the whole story. We can't figure it out from beginning to end. Just enough eternity in our hearts to kind of get us in trouble, is what he's saying. It doesn't keep us from trying, in some ways, to know what that whole picture will be and to anticipate it. Or to try and look back and correct everything. And so we often live, because we have this eternity in our hearts, we often live in the past or in the future and forget to kind of put our feet down in the present where we are. We either live in that space of regret and nostalgia about the past or in that space of dreams and anxieties about the future and all the while neglecting the present and asking, what did I have, or what will I have, but avoiding really the only question that's worth working with in some ways, and that's, what do I have right now? Where am I, and how can I live this moment in light of that vast scope of eternity of past and, and future? It's an invitation to be present in the present. And the sentiment among those exiles was largely, we don't want to be here. We miss what we had, and we're looking forward to what we'll get when we get back to where we were. But right now is, is not so good. And so those prophets that were taken into exile as well were prophesying that, no, you're going to get out of this place. And in some ways, playing the political game, saying if they think too much about being comfortable in the here and now, then we won't have the support we need to get out of this place and go back to Jerusalem. 
And so there was just a general sense of dissatisfaction with where they were, and Jeremiah writes his letter to those dissatisfied exiles. That dissatisfaction is shown in the, the psalm that Jason read for us earlier, Psalm 137, by the waters of Babylon. We sat down and wept. We wept when we remembered Zion, and there we hung our harps on the willows, and there our captors demanded songs from us, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. The people were dissatisfied, as exile would always dissatisfy anyone. And in Psalm 137, they were saying, you know, they want us to teach them some of our songs, but we're going to hang our harps up on these willows that are planted next to these god-awful canals that they have in this city. And we're not going to sing. We're just going to cross our arms and be mad. How could we possibly sing in a place as wretched as this? And then Jeremiah's gracious but hard word comes to them. And he essentially says, you are well aware of what you don't have. You are well aware of what you lost. You're dreaming about some time in the future when you might get it back. But have you thought about what life might look like if you simply planted yourself where you are? Have you thought what life might look like if you do the thing that you can do right now, which is to be fully in the present? What might happen if you deal with what is rather than weeping about what is gone or getting lost in the daydreams about the defeat of your captors? Kind of vindictive dreams that they were having about overthrowing their captors in the same way they were overthrown. Part of the psalm that we didn't read this morning is the way it ends, which is awful. It's really angry, to say the least. You know, happy will the one be who takes your babies, O Babylon, and dashes their heads against the rocks. Pleasant image for a Sunday morning. But a picture of the anger they were experiencing and of what they wanted to have happen in order to get out of that place. But Jeremiah gives them an invitation to a very different kind of prayer. Not a prayer for restoration or retribution, but a prayer that asks for an experience of God's presence right here and now. And I wanted to read the book that we're reading in the book group on Jeremiah, uh, Eugene Peterson's Run with the Horses. Peterson kind of summarizes the letter to the exiles this way. Jeremiah's letter is a rebuke and a challenge. Quit sitting around feeling sorry for yourself. The aim of the person of faith is not to be as comfortable as possible, but to live as deeply and thoroughly as possible, to deal with the reality of life, discover truth, create beauty, act out love. The only place you have to be human is where you are right now. The only opportunity you will ever have to live by faith is in the circumstances you are provided this very day. This house you live in, this family you find yourself in, this job you have been given, the weather conditions that prevail at this moment. Exile, being where we don't want to be with people we don't want to be with, forces a decision. Will I focus my attention on what is wrong with the world and feel sorry for myself? Or will I focus my energies on how I can live at my best in this place 
where I find myself. The example of that simple but profound and powerful prayer that is given in in this admonition that comes from Jeremiah, it's a kind of prayer that can change our lives. It's one that I've talked about again and again and again. I think it's the way we ought to begin each day and literally utter with every breath, Lord, how are you present? How are you at work here? And how can I be a part of that work? It's a prayer to recognize God's grace and and live into it right now. You know, St. Paul has a, a similar kind of admonition in in um, 2 Corinthians 6. If you know anything about Paul's history with the Corinthian church, it was not a happy one. They didn't like him much, and I'm sure there were many times where he didn't like them much. But in 2 Corinthians, as he kind of struggles to explain his ministry to the Corinthian people, you know, he, he invites them to open up their hearts early in in the book. And then in chapter six, he says this, as we work together with God, we urge you not to accept the grace of God in vain. For his word says, at an acceptable time, I have listened to you. And on a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. We are putting no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry, but as servants of God, we have commended ourselves in every way through great endurance in afflictions and hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, holiness of spirit, genuine love, truthful speech, and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left in honor and dishonor, in ill repute and good repute. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet are well-known, as dying and yet see, we're alive, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing everything. We've spoken frankly to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open to you. There is no restriction in our affections, but only in yours. In return, I speak to you as children. Open wide your hearts to us as well. You got to picture Paul walking around while he's saying this, you know, just that list just spewing out of his mouth uh, of just the frustration with with the present experience of the Corinthian people as, as one who's trying to bring God's word to them. And what he says at the end is exactly the point. You know, irrespective of all that has happened, our hearts are open wide. Here's what it comes down to. Open wide your hearts as well. Peter does the same thing in his book when he talks about what it means to be a believer in the midst of a dominant, oppressive, hegemonistic Roman society that was at the time persecuting some parts of the Christian church. He basically says to the people to whom he's writing, live honorably among the Gentiles. It's the same prayer, open wide your hearts. 
Look and see who you can be and what you can be right now because God is with you. What Jeremiah's letter gives to the exiles, and it's such a beautiful piece, it's the essence of that little greeting card cliche, bloom where you're planted. Be where you are and look for God's presence there. But what Jeremiah gave to the exiles in that letter, he gives to us now, and that is the assurance that in the midst of the upheaval and the fear and the dissatisfaction that exile brings, there is a constant. And the one who apprehends the big picture will be with us wherever we are. And we can look for and live into the signs of God's presence right now. I see Sue Byers is here today, and I, I, uh, you, you probably don't like being pointed out, Sue, but she gave me this little... I'm, Thad, go ahead and put up the banner that I asked for. She gave me this little banner. Kathy Hastings did the banner, but this the other woman, Marguerite Goff, take the picture? No, Kathy took Kathy took the picture, and Marguerite put this together? Or? Well, she did. Oh, okay. So she just given her attribution for it. Well, I wanted to give attribution to both of them, and thanks to Sue for this. But this this lovely, uh, simple photo. I think it's the bow of a of a kayak, either headed toward a sunrise or a sunset in the the San Juans, right somewhere. And this simple saying: I have this day. There's a lot I don't have. There's a lot I'd like to know. There's a lot I'd like to have, but what do I have? I have right now. I have this day. And there's another thing to keep that thing up there, but Wendell Berry's collection of Sabbath poems is called This Day. And I don't know whether they did that, but I want to read the the title poem. After the long weeks... It's kind of a book review today, sorry about that. But uh, after the long weeks when the heat curled the leaves and the air thirsted, comes a morning after rain, cool and bright. The leaves uncurl, the pastures begin again to grow, the animals and the birds rejoice. If tonight the world ends, we'll have had this day. You know, the scary and wonderful thing to remember is that the only thing that any of us really have is this day. We can celebrate or regret the past. We can dream about or dread the future. But the only thing we can possess is what we have and where we are right now. And the God who created us, the God who has promised to be with us, is with us right now. And the best that we can do is drink in the grace of that and let it fuel our lives so that that grace and mercy can be shared with our world. Let's pray. Lord, remind us of your good gift to us. 
that we have your steadfast love and we have this day. So guide us through that exploration of things we might regret or things that we miss and guide us into an anticipation of all that you will be doing. But help us to rest between those two things, knowing that on either side of this moment, you are with us, and especially that you are with us right now. So help us to embrace the present, to open wide our hearts, to live honorably among those who might even seek our harm. And to do so because you have established us firmly in the bond of your love. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.